Articles by Desiring God Did Jesus Pursue His Own Glory? The God-Centeredness of the God-Man Written and read by David Mathis That one phrase, the glory of God, says Jonathan Edwards, includes all that is ever spoken of in Scripture as an ultimate end of God's works. This might be Edwards' most memorable and often quoted summary of his dissertation concerning the end for which God created the world. In the final section, he argues that God's supreme end in creation is one, not many, and that this one end is best captured as the glory of God. That is, the true external expression of God's internal glory and fullness. God made the world and rules all history to display his glory. So, many of us, gladly persuaded by the biblical refrain, speak reverently of the God-centeredness of God. As the scriptures testify at many times and in many ways, and as Edwards catalogs and presents, our Creator righteously has a supreme regard to himself rather than mere humans. With patient instruction and careful reflection, biblically shaped minds often see the sense and rightness of the infinite value of the Creator compared to His creatures. Yet, the incarnation and human life of Jesus raises some fascinating questions. What happens when the Creator Himself, in the eternal person of His Son, takes on our full humanity and in this way becomes a creature with us in our created world? How does the earthly life of Jesus, the God-man, in His so-called state of humiliation from birth to the cross relate to God's God-centeredness? And how does this God-centeredness relate to Christ's subsequent state of exaltation, beginning with the cross and resurrection, and including his ascension and sitting down on heaven's throne? Developing Theme In both Edwards's dissertation and his most celebrated work, The Freedom of the Will, He addresses, albeit indirectly, this often overlooked aspect of our doctrine of Christ. In the dissertation, chapter 2, section 3, Edwards briefly notes that Scripture leads us to suppose that Christ sought God's glory as his highest and last end, a theme to which he returns in section 6. In Freedom of the Will, Edwards draws in a relevant aspect of his Christology as a point clearly and absolutely determining the controversy between Calvinists and Arminians. Footnote, some of the greatest Arminians, writes Edwards, deny that behavior can be both necessary, that is determined, and also virtuous. But Christology, and in particular the moral character and practice of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he exhibited in his human nature here, in his state of humiliation, demonstrates the contrary. The incarnate Christ's holy behavior was necessary and also was properly of the nature of virtue and was worthy of praise. Biblical Christology, thought Edwards, devastatingly undermines Arminian assumptions. End of footnote. As we'll see below, In both instances, Edwards leads us to consider our question diachronically rather than statically. In other words, despite our tendency to press for a simple, timeless answer, Edwards observes a progress and development of the theme across time as the incarnate Christ moves 
through his state of humiliation to his state of exaltation. Today, in his exalted state, with the Son's redemptive work complete, the glory of the Father and his Son are seen to be the one essential whole that they are and always have been. But in the earthly life of Christ, the plan of the Father and Son unfolded in history as Jesus moved toward the cross. Christ's Goal in Life First, Jesus the God-man lived his human life in utter dedication to his Father and his Father's glory. Rightly did the angels proclaim glory to God at Jesus' birth as the glory of the Father came to the fore in the life and ministry of his Son. In his state of humiliation, from manger to cross, the God-man Jesus Christ did not glorify himself, he says. But his words and deeds and the effect and intent of his human life were in full and glad submission to the will and glory of his Father. As Jesus summarizes his earthly life and ministry in John 8, 49, I honor my Father. The Son loves his Father. And as he lived as man, he set his face toward the cross, propelled by his delight in and love for his Father. Jesus instructed his disciples to so live and bear fruit, that his Father would be glorified. And he taught them to pray for the hallowing of his Father's name. The night before he died, Jesus summarized in prayer his life's work as, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. When Jesus sees that at last his hour has come for the cross, he turns heavenward in prayer, Father, glorify your name. While the God-centeredness of God might lead us to expect a simple Christ-centeredness of Christ in his earthly ministry, this is largely not what we yet find in his state of humiliation. In the dissertation, Edwards points to John 7.18 as characteristic of Christ's humbled estate. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. The incarnate Christ does not seek his own glory, but the glory of his Father, him who sent him. Jesus sought his Father's glory, says Edwards, as his highest and last end. In Freedom of the Will, Edwards observes that the words of Isaiah 42, 1-4 imply a promise of Christ's being so upheld by God's Spirit that he should be preserved from sin, and particularly from pride and vainglory, and from being overcome by any of the temptations he should be under to affect the glory of this world, the pomp of an earthly prince, or the applause and praise of men. So, to be clear, the God-centered God becoming man in the life of Christ does not produce one who is, in essence, a self-centered human. Jesus' preservation from sin, says Edwards, is particularly from pride and vainglory. As demonstrated in rebuffing Satan's temptations in the wilderness, Jesus did not pursue the glory of this world. Rather, Edward cites Isaiah 49.7 to show that Jesus, in his state of humiliation, is one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation. However, here in the same verse of prophecy comes the shift from humiliation to exaltation that will come at the cross. 
kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves before the one who was once deeply despised. His near approach to death. As Jesus draws near to the cross, we discover a significant development. Edwards turns from John 7 to the now of John 12, with Jesus' crucifixion in a few days. Christ is in this near approach to his death. And where does he turn? Again, to his ultimate and supreme end, praying in John 12, 27 to 28. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The Father's voice from heaven then confirms it. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Edwards comments, God had glorified his name in what Christ had done, in the work he sent him upon in his earthly life so far, and he would glorify it again and to a greater degree in what he should do further in his sacrificial death and in the success thereof. In his next statement, Jesus refers, however obliquely, to his own lifting up and exaltation. Now, writes Edwards, in the success of the same work of redemption, he places his own glory as was observed before. As Jesus had said in John 12, 23, with his imminent death in view, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In this hour, not only will the Father lift him up, rather than Jesus lifting himself up, but this first lifting up will be a lifting of all places to the odium of the cross. Even as Christ, who is himself God, moves to acknowledge and affirm the coming lifting up, the glorifying of himself, he proceeds with a care befitting his humanity and creatureliness. Though, at this key juncture, as he draws nearer to the cross, he rehearses his supreme end to glorify his Father, Jesus also now acknowledges and reveals that he desires his own exaltation. As John 13, 31-32 fills out Jesus' multiple motivations in going to the cross, Edwards comments that the glory of the Father and his own glory are what Christ exulted in. Seeing that his hour has come and that he will soon move beyond this state of humiliation and enter into glory with his great final act of self-humbling, Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. In Jesus' near approach to the cross, we see both glories, as it were, a father, and a son, coming to the fore, not in competition, and accentuating each other. Not only will the incarnate son continue to glorify his father, as he has since Bethlehem, but now he will do so in new measure and to a greater degree. And the father, too, will glorify his son. So intertwined are the operations of the father and the son, comments D.A. Carson that the entire mission can be looked at another way. One may reverse the order. Son glorifies Father, and Father glorifies His Son. He comes yet nearer. Edwards then moves to the far side of the Upper Room Discourse, to Jesus' remarkable prayer in John 17, 
when Jesus comes yet nearer to the hour of his last sufferings. As in John 12, Jesus prays again for the glory of his Father, and yet here, remarkably, the prayer is even more clearly for his own glory, and that to the glory of his Father. John 17, 1 to 5, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 1 captures the essence of this hour at the cross. The sun will be lifted up in the culminating humiliation that is simultaneously the first lifting up of his exaltation. And this glorification of the Son at the cross will be to the glory of his Father. The cross is both the final act and consummation of his humbling and the essential prelude to even the first act of his exaltation. Verses four to five trace in sequence the movement from his humbled earthly life in verse four to his coming exalted state in verse five. Humbled, he says, I glorified you on earth. Exalted, he says, now, Father, glorify me in your presence. How did Jesus endure? Previously, Jesus had eschewed pursuing his own glory, receiving glory from humans, and glorifying himself. In the near approach of John 12 and 17, in the quintessential creaturely act of prayer, Jesus reveals the heart that kept him going to the cross, a heart that was not simple, but complex. First, his life work and lead prayer were for his Father's glory. Second, as he draws near to the cross, we see his holy desire for his proper glory and exaltation, not in place of his Father, but with him, in his presence. And third, his desires for his Father's glory and his come together with his heart of love for his people and his acting to save them at the cross. Here, Edwards connects John 12 and 17 with Hebrews 12.2. He says, the expressions of divine grace in the sanctification and happiness of the redeemed are especially that glory of his and his father, which was the joy that was set before him, for which he endured the cross and despised the shame, and that this glory especially was the end of the travail of his soul in obtaining which end he was satisfied. In other words, The joy set before Jesus, through which he endured the cross and thus loved his people, was his glory and his Father's. The travail of his soul and subsequent satisfaction refer to Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant, who, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, shall see his offspring, that is, his redeemed people. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Isaiah 53, verses 10 to 11. In both the dissertation and freedom of the will, Edwards points to Jesus' looking forward to the reward of his exaltation as the key 
to his enduring in his state of humiliation, all the way to death on a cross. In the dissertation, he says, commenting on John 7, 18, when Christ says he did not seek his own glory, we cannot reasonably understand him that he had no regard to his own glory, even the glory of the human nature. For the glory of that nature was part of the reward promised him and of the joy set before him. But we understand him that this was not his ultimate aim. It was not the end that chiefly governed his conduct. In Freedom of the Will, Edwards highlights that Jesus had promises of glorious reward made to him on condition of his persevering in and perfecting the work which God had appointed him. Christ had not only promises of glorious success and rewards made to his obedience and sufferings, but the scriptures plainly represent him as using these promises for motives and inducements to suffer and obey, and particularly that promise of a kingdom which the Father had appointed him, or sitting with the Father on his throne, as in Hebrews 12, 1-2. Glory set before him. With Christ, we come to the unique and spectacular man who is also God, and the one person of the Godhead who also became man. We both learn from his imitable example of holy creatureliness, and we worship him as the one who inimitably died and was raised for us. In doing so, we see that as Jesus came closer to the cross, his pursuit of the Father's glory became increasingly distinct from ours. We, those who are redeemed in Christ, have a great state of exaltation to come, but not as the unique divine Son. Yet, even here, in his unfolding pursuit of divine glory in his near approach to the cross, he shows us how we too acknowledge and righteously seek our own portion of creaturely glory. In asking for glory, in John 12 and 17, Jesus is strikingly human. On his human knees, in human words, with his fully human mouth and soul, he asks of his Father. He prays. Rather than grasping or putting himself forward, he makes his holy request and he walks in faith. For Christians, as it was for Christ himself in human flesh, our being glorified, exalted, lifted up by God is no sin or danger. The trouble is our self-glorifying, our self-exalting, our grasping. Jesus' humble acknowledgement of his coming glory in John 12 and his prayer for his Father to decisively exalt him in John 17 are not instances of man seeking to take or seize glory, but rather a holy man, by patience and well-doing, seeking for glory and honor and immortality. Yet, Christ as imitable example is not the final or most important word. We worship one whose glory is distinct and inimitable. As Jesus draws near to the cross, the glory of the Father and his Son is revealed to be one essential whole. We dare not pit one against the other. So, as Edward says in the dissertation, the glory of the Father and the Son is spoken of as the end of the work of redemption. And as he writes in Freedom of the Will, the glory bestowed on Christ 
does not compete with or distract from the glory of his Father or the Godhead as a whole. As Edwards had long preached, so he confirmed in two of his great works of the 1750s, God made the world to communicate and glorify himself through Jesus Christ, God-man. For more resources, visit DesiringGod.org.